everyone. My name is Grace Beatty, and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. On this podcast, I will be discussing with leading experts some of history's most infamous and maligned women. Within each episode, I do not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but I do strive to bring a more holistic and rounded understanding of each particular woman's story. Step back in time and come on this journey with me as we discover the lives and legacies of these fascinating women. In today's episode, I will be discussing the fascinating life of Pearl, more commonly known as Polly Adler, the owner of some of the best-known brothels in Manhattan during the Roaring Twenties. Joining me today is Debbie Applegate, the author of Madam, the biography of Polly Adler, icon of the Jazz Age. Continue listening to learn more about this dynamic woman from history. I was the creation of the times, of an era whose credo was, anything which is economically right is morally right. In fact, if I had all of history to choose from, I could hardly have picked a better age in which to be a madam. Polly Adler. Polly Adler was one of the most well-known madams in New York City during the 1920s, a raucous era of speakeasies, brothels, the mob, and sexual expression. Polly rose from a shtetl in the Russian Pale of Settlement to become the Queen Madam. Not only was she known to supply girls to wealthy men, but her nightclubs that dotted the city were a favorite haunt for some of the most famous names of 1920s New York. Polly Adler's profession was not a new one by the 1920s. Brothels, which provide the services of sex workers, have been woven into the fabric of civilization since its inception. The first record of the trade was temple brothels operating in the region of Canaan in 2400 BCE. For many cities throughout history, an area is dedicated to the sex trade, often known as the Red Light District. It was considered a necessary, albeit shameful, element of any urban society. Polly and her profession are glorified or villainized, depending on what you read. She can be depicted as a brilliant businesswoman and an open-minded feminist, or as a high-end pimp and a woman betraying her own sex by seducing some of its most vulnerable into the sex trade. In the end, the true Polly Adler might be somewhere in between. Polly Adler was born somewhere around 1900. Her parents were never certain, in the town of Yano, in what is today Belarus, but then was part of the massive Russian Empire. She was born into a Jewish family and remembers in her memoir that her father worked as a tailor. Pearl was born in a turbulent time to be a Jew in Russia. Pogroms were rife and restrictions were placed on every aspect of Jewish life. Jewish families were leaving the Russian Empire en masse and Mehdi heading for the land of opportunity, America. Here is Debbie Applegate. She starts out as a very typical immigrant story, the one we've often heard many times before. If you go to Ellis Island or read about the traditional immigrant story from the the late 19th century and the early 20th century, she's born... Uh, around 1900. She was never quite sure exactly because all the records of her birth were destroyed during World War I and World War II. Um, 
she's a very good Jewish girl living in a shtetl in a in a in a small town in Belarus, uh, what was then part of the Pale of Russia, which was a very Jewish area of Russia. That's getting poorer and poorer. There's much more political instability, and so uh, around the time that she's 13 years old, her father decides that the whole family is going to move to America. Uh, but unfortunately, like so many people who are immigrants, they don't have enough money to move the entire family. So he decides he's going to send his oldest child, and she'll go over. She's the oldest. She'll go over. She'll earn enough money to send back for the next uh, child to come over, um, and that's not at all uncommon. That's still the common way for people to immigrate. What is a little more unusual is that she was a girl, uh, but uh, among Jews, it was not uncommon for girls to be the ones to go first because uh, uh, they used to say back in Russia at that time, uh, and it's still in some parts of the Jewish community: men are learners and women are earners. Men are supposed to stay home and study. The boys. Stay home and study the Torah. The girls go out into the marketplace and help support the family. They also are the ones who run the household, make sure the Sabbath is taken care of, milk the cows, you know, take care of the chickens, have the children, feed the children. Uh, they basically do all of the work while uh, the men uh, become become more and more learned and holy. Suppo- t- supposedly, as they uh, the the cruder way of putting it was uh, that a man stuffed with learning. Learning uh, is worth more than a woman stuffed with banknotes, which uh, that depends on your values, I guess. Uh, so she comes first, uh, and she thinks I'm going to get the education I always wanted. I'm going to become a someone. She goes to school. She's sent to stay with friends of her family's, not her, not her own family, not people she knew. She enrolls in school. She, everything looks like it's going wonderfully. And four months after she arrives in December of 1913. World War One breaks out. Now she's stuck here. Her parents can't travel. Nobody's leaving Russia. Nobody's leaving Europe for the most part, and she's stuck here living among strangers. She's forced to quit school. She is forced to go to work in the paper factories where she lives, making three dollars a week, working six、uh, six days a week, and nine hour days. And she very quickly decides she's poor. She's uneducated. She's miserable and lonely. Why not take a chance on、uh, a new life in New York City? And that's when her next big move. She decides around the age of fifteen that she is going to move in with some cousins in Brooklyn, New York, in an area called Brownsville, which is very poor,、uh, very Jewish、uh, area. And once there. There are good parts and bad parts. One of the things about being a working girl without parents to watch over you is you have a lot of freedom. You know, she's working in the garment factories. She can spend her own money mostly the way she likes. She doesn't make a lot of money, but it is hers. She doesn't have to give it to her family. She、uh, can buy her own clothes. She can spend all night parading around Pitkin Avenue. She can go to Coney Island. She loves. Coney Island, the Nickel Paradise.、Um, she loves the ragtime dance halls. Well, all of those are things that any social worker or any Sunday school teacher will tell you are full of snares for a young girl with no mother at home to watch over her. And in fact, she does find herself soon getting in trouble.、Um, she is.、Uh, 
date raped, I guess we would now say, uh, by her boss at the uh, corset factory. She gets pregnant by him. When he refuses to marry her, she undergoes an illegal abortion, which uh, is extremely common at that time before adequate birth control and before birth control is entirely legal. And uh, there is very, there's no pill, that's for sure. There's, and uh, illegal abortions are quite common, especially in her neighborhood. Um, nonetheless, now she has no money. Now she's traumatized when her, uh, her, her boss fires her. Uh, as soon as all this happens, uh, very quickly, her cousins kick her out of the house because here's this sweet little small town girl who has become a, a wild child, uh, a nafka, you know, so she, there are, there are many jokes about uh, Jewish mothers in America uh, as being overbearing and worrying too much. But if she had had a mother there, a lot of these traumas would probably not have had happened. So that is the downside of, of being um, a, a, not an orphan, but a teenage girl with no supervision, as any uh, as any uh, good mother will tell you. Uh, that so so now she basically is on her own, and she has to decide what she's going to do. It's 1919; the war has just ended. There, uh, we America enters something of a recession. There are strikes. Uh, it is a very turbulent time for a, a, for a young girl of any kind, but especially one living on her own, trying to find a place to live, uh, trying to find a job that can pay enough for her to live on. None of those things seem available to her. And so she very quickly, at the age of 19, drifts into the sex trades. I, she's very cagey about exactly how that happened. Like many madams, she does not like to admit that she uh, ever herself traded her body for money. But in fact, as in any other business, nobody jumps from not knowing anything to being the boss. Uh, she did go through a period that she, it's very clear that she first starts picking people up on the street or in the dance halls or in uh, now what are starting to become the speakeasies uh, that are starting to open. Uh, and very quickly then drifts into a brothel or is recruited to uh, go work in a, in a small brothel up on the Upper West Side uh, near Riverside Drive. And that really is the big change. She is a very smart girl, even though she doesn't have a lot of education. She's very funny. She's very sweet-tempered. And she has a head for business. She's very strong-willed. She can do math. She can speak multiple languages. She's, you know, she was raised like a middle-class kid. Like she's got all that she needs, except all the support that she needs. So very quickly she decides, you know what? Maybe I would be better off being the boss. I, as she likes to say, I wasn't pretty enough to be a hustler. I had to be a madam. Uh, so in 1920, opens her first Bravo right across from uh, Columbia University, which is all male at that time. It's right by where Butler Library is. She does not say she did uh, market research, but clearly it was the, a great location, as they say, location, 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 and great timing. She opens it just as uh, Prohibition is beginning, and Prohibition turns um, the social world upside down. Before that, if you, women didn't really drink, they certainly didn't go to bars. Um, and men, you know, if you drank, you, you, it was a very much, a, it was very much a double standard uh, that men had their, their social lives and women had their social lives. Now, all of a sudden, if you want to have a beer, 
If you uh, you have to concert with criminals, you become something of a criminal, uh, and all of it. So that gives it a kind of a criminal chic. We take that all of that vice that used to be something no one would ever do. Now women are saying, "Oh, I want to go see what's in that speakeasy. I want to go and see that nightclub. Oh, what's this excitement? Oh, that bad man over there. Is he a bootlegger? So you, uh, you, you, oh, you know, those women over there. What are they? You know that the, it it turns. It makes it glamorous somehow now to be treading around the edges of vice in a way that was not at all what the prohibitionists intended. It makes drinking uh, fashionable, at least for a certain kind of uh, person and uh, the the kind who were already maybe looking to be rebellious or who were young and who all of a sudden it looks like the world has become totally full of hypocrites. And uh, so she enters the sex trades just at that moment where the underworld and the world of vice has become something that people are actually interested in and willing to pay to see. And it means that if you, you know, they had uh, plenty of saloons before, but they have three times as many secret unlicensed speakeasies because now you don't have to pay taxes. You don't have to, fire codes don't matter. And if you're already breaking the law for one thing, you might as well break the law for other things. So you start to see more drug dealing in these places. You start to see um, more prostitutions, more casual bar girls kind of hanging around because everything has become scrambled. Instead of high and low, legal and illegal, all of a sudden it's this whole thrilling, exciting stew. Plus, it is the moment, as any historian of New York loves to say, the moment when New York City became the most powerful and most popular city in the world. Uh, Europe has been destroyed. You've got uh, the, the other cities in America aren't even close to the economic powerhouse that New York is. So you have all the creative people, all the ambitious people from across the country and from across the world beginning to pour into New York. So it's an unusual, I mean, that's always true of New York, but this particular moment, it is the most powerful city in the world at the most powerful time in American history, uh, at least so far. Pearl Adler, now dubbing herself the American sounding Polly Adler, rose through the ranks of sex work in a staggeringly short amount of time. Polly's introduction into the world of selling sex is murky, but by the 1920s, she was a madam running a brothel out of her two-bedroom apartment at 620 West 115th Street in the Upper West Side. Polly entered the world of the sex trade at a moment of intense change in the way sex and sexuality was being viewed, at least for a time. As Debbie discusses, she begins just as the sexual revolution of the early 20th century is really kicking off, where women really are having more opportunities, both in the workplace, but even more in their social lives, to remake their relationships uh, with the opposite sex. Interestingly, I think social mores, sexual mores change faster than economic practices. Women don't find themselves better able to support themselves. So they just find it that they can get divorced now. Well, that's not, that's not the best. Oh, you can have sex before marriage, but, uh, but that's not going to help you if you can't, if you won't be paid enough to, to live on your own. And, uh, and so at the beginning, there are really, it's the end of an era where there are still red light districts that are basically being closed because of World War One. But there are, it is still common for young men to expect to lose their virginity with a prostitute. 
that fathers will take them to uh, or uncles or the one of her clients. She tells a story about a, a businessman who had gone to Yale and his two sons were at Yale. And he says, uh, listen, you be safe when you go into the city. Don't be messing around with waitresses or chorus girls because God knows that what would happen. They might blackmail you. It's a time of tremendous blackmail because there's such a weird double standard that you can go have sex, but you, you can have sex, but they, who, you don't want to get caught. So go to Polly's. He says, go to Polly's uh, where it's safer. Presumably they will have fewer chance of having sexually transmitted disease. No one will try to catch you to marry you or to get pregnant or to blackmail you. And so he says, just put it on my charge account. She says, oh, the next time they come, it's not just the two sons. They bring like all their classmates and have a huge party. And the father said, well, I'm not paying for the whole sex life of Yale University on my, on, put it on my tab. This time I'll pay for it. Uh, but next time. And so at the beginning of her time, you are having people who are just coming because they're not going to have any sex before marriage if they're, if they don't go to someone, a bad woman, right? A bad woman, rather, they'll marry a good woman, but they want to have sex, they want to lose their virginity with a bad woman. By the end of night, by the time she retires, you know, the sexual revolution really has changed things. Women really are having sex before or outside of marriage, much more commonly. Men are starting to expect that you might have sex with somebody of your own class. Uh, and so she says, what's interesting is you would think that that would have cut into her business. But in fact, she found that what her, her business became more exotic, that it was people came because they wanted something that they couldn't ask their wives for, or that they couldn't get just from uh, their girlfriends or a normal woman. Uh, and, or maybe they were too embarrassed to ask for. She said at a certain point, we started to refer to any man who just wanted to come in and have a screw as a truck driver. Just, well, they're having truck driver sex. That's all he wants. And you know, <laughs> thank heaven. She had girls who would specialize and like, all right, I can, I can deal with this. And I went again, I don't know what I wished for. Sometimes I was like, tell me, what do you mean? What is it you're talking about? But tell me where other times I'm like, oh, I don't know. Maybe it's just as well, but I don't know. The role of a madam has existed for as long as brothels. While pimps, typically used when referring to men, were responsible for procuring and initiating women into the sex trade, the madam often ran the brothel directly, caring for the women and or keeping them in line, as well as interacting with patrons. A brothel like Polly's usually had at least five to 20 working women. In some cases, there were also additional staff for the house and restaurant, if the brothel had one. Polly claimed that she never introduced women into sex work, but would only hire women already working in the industry. As she says in her memoirs, I told myself I didn't invent sex. Nobody had come to my place who didn't want to. The girls were never novices, I insisted on that, and came in with eyes wide open. I'm not apologizing for my decision. My feeling is that by the time there are such choices to be made, your life already has made the decision for you. Debbie discusses Polly's role as a madam. By the time she's 23 years old, this is, so it's, she's about 20, she's about as old as the, as the century. So she's around the time that she's 23 years old. 
Uh, this is a time when the average white man is making $3,000 a year. The average white woman, if they work outside the home, is making about half of that. She's making $60,000 a year, which is about the equivalent of a million bucks today. So imagine you're a girl who has up until now felt like the world has done nothing but kick you around. Uh, no, you have no power. You have no control of your destiny. Suddenly, and you, you're, you're consigned to make it, you're the bottom of the economic ladder. All of a sudden, not only are you rich, she's, she's rich and she has control over her destiny in a way that I think must be intoxicating. And, and I think also very important about the sex trades even now is that feeling that you can you can survive based only on what you already have, your body, that you don't need to have any education, you don't need to have tools, you don't need to have credentials, that even if you have nothing else, you're going to be able to survive in a world that doesn't give a damn about you one way or the other. And that is its own kind of euphoric feeling. So that even though it's sometimes, I think, hard for people to imagine, oh, how could how could you, you switch on it like that morally and, and in practice? I think that it's hard to imagine what it's like to be that, feel that lonely and powerless and how much power you can feel in taking control of your yourself that way. Um, so she felt very strongly uh, that she, there was a big difference between what a madam did and what, for example, a pimp did. She hated pimps hated drugs. Uh, she she was very, in many ways, very respectable. She wanted to be respectable. Uh, it always bugged her the, uh, tremendously that I, listen, if I, if I, if I were Lee, I didn't say Lee, I cook, if I were Walter Chrysler, you would, you know, if I were selling cars instead of girls, you would think I were, was great. Um, uh, so a primp, she always said, is basically an abuser and a manipulator. Someone who takes all the girls' money, who will not let them leave the business, Business if they want to, who will seduce them or force them into the business and keep them working even when it's clearly not good for them. And if they, and if she shows any sign of leaving, he'll introduce her to drugs or he'll beat her up or manipulate her emotionally. Um, and Polly saw herself quite differently. And for the most part, I really think this is absolutely true. She will say, I was not a fairy godmother to whores. Uh, that's her actual quote. But I was a fair... Uh, boss. I, she said, listen, they're contributing their body and their skills and their smarts. And I'm contributing a place. I'm paying to keep you safe from cops. I am creating a safe environment as safe I, as I can so that you will not have people as I'm going to try to keep out the sociopaths and the crazy drunks. Um, so you're physically more safe. I'm going to keep out the people who would try to shake you down uh, or blackmail you. Uh, I'm going to keep out the cops as much as I possibly can. I'm going to bring you good clients who will pay top dollar. And, and I'm also going to make sure you have um, uh, bed, food, uh, all the things you need. And in case of an emergency, uh, she helps them out. She'll bail, bail them out if they get arrested, if they need an abortion, if they need to go to the doctor, she'll help pay for that. So altogether, she considered it uh, an equal partnership. Uh, and that was about what she took. She took half and uh there are certainly people who occasionally complained, you know, nobody likes, uh, nobody likes everybody, uh, their boss all the time. Uh, there were women who did not like the fact that she would not let you work for her. If she had, if you had a pimp, 
or if you had a drug habit. Although if she liked you and she knew you, she would help you get off drugs, which mostly she found to be a losing effort uh, because uh, narcotics are, are very, of course, very, very addictive. Not an easy thing to do. Uh, she, she swears she tried to persuade people to save their money and get out of the business or to not go into the business at all if they were not professionals. But I think she also... Um, she gives herself a lot of credit. Uh, she, she she was also known, even as she was known as being very fair, and you could make a ton of money for her enough uh, that I saw. I uh, one just pause started over, so you don't have to. So one of the things I looked at among the many sources that I looked at um, were her FBI files, which were very extensive, and uh, and I felt very lucky to be able to have them. And they never were ever able to really get something on her. J. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover explicitly wanted his agents to try to find something on her. Specifically, he wanted her to find. They wanted her to be brought in on what they called the Man Act, which, uh, if you're familiar with it. What it is is uh, the laws against uh, moving women across state lines for immoral or illicit purposes, uh, which, uh, of course, is its own sort of um, sexist kind of law, because uh, I guess men can travel across state lines for all sorts of illicit purposes, uh, I guess, and it's I guess it's just fine. Uh, but they were never able to. And one thing, it's in the FBI files. They're interviewing pimps and prostitutes from across the country. And any time they run into one, they'll say, hey, do you know Polly Adler? Do you think she's ever brought women across state lines to come work for her? And they say, oh, no, she doesn't have to do that. A, too smart to do that because she knows that she would get caught. And B, she has 30 people applying for every position that she hires because people would come from across the country knowing that they could make a small fortune working for her. And so she obviously was, she did live up her, to her reputation as a fair boss. On the other hand, it's clear that she would, uh, she likes to say she only had um, natural practices in her brothel. She does not specify what an unnatural practice is, but I think that's entirely untrue. I think that if she thought you wanted something special uh, that you could not get somewhere else, whether it was somebody of another race or the same sex or multiple people or what, what have you, she would make sure that you got what you needed. At one point, she she talks about she had one guy who said all he wanted uh, was an elderly gentleman. All he wanted was to have uh, a woman, naked woman, walk around the room uh, saying, pretty Polly, pretty Polly. Uh, you know what? But she could she could arrange for that if you wanted to be whipped. It turns out she began to specialize just in that. Uh, if you thought you needed an extra young fella to spice up your marriage, you could, you could find that whatever. So she doesn't like to talk about that part. But the other thing she insists is she never hired anyone who was not already in the game, as she puts it, or in the life. I think that also is very, um, uh, it's a little too generous towards herself. Um, it's very clear from the testimony of other people who knew her, and she had many, 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 many friends in, in the New York world of who, very high-end people, very low-end people, they ran the gamut, and they said she would 
she would approach any pretty young woman anywhere at a manicurist at the hairdresser in the ladies lounge at the nightclub uh anywhere she saw you if she would if she thought you might be a likely candidate she would say hon is it would you like to make two hundred dollars in in 90 minutes really easily and uh and if people would say no she would say well that's all right you know some you just give me a call here's my card if you ever find yourself that you would you know in some trouble and she, she had many women work for her young ladies work for her teenagers even though she says they were not many teenagers work for her who were trying to become singers and dancers and actresses on the, the Broadway stage or in vaudeville or later on in Hollywood. And so often she had um, many very respectable young women who you would never in a million years to this day know uh, that they had gone on dates for her because you, she, you could do it very under the table and you know nobody would necessarily know and until they got their big break. And she says she had about half a dozen women who worked for her who went on to big careers in, in Hollywood. She mostly does not name them. Uh, I happened to get my hands on the um, correspondence and writing notebooks of her uh, ghostwriter, uh, a woman named Virginia Faulkner, who helped her write her memoir, House is Not a Home. And she mentions two of them. One of them, uh, she didn't become a, a Hollywood star. She became a theater star, a woman named Libby Holman, who you will sometimes still hear. She was one of the earliest torch singers from the white world. Uh, and she married uh, one of the Reynolds tobacco fortune and immediately was accused of murdering him. So she doesn't really, she counted as cafe society celebrity. And in fact, she was acquitted. So then she became very rich. Uh, but then the other one who she mentions, a, a very wild woman, uh, the, Libby Holman, a great story in and of herself. But the other, but the one that probably more people would know about, certainly if you have a certain age, is the actress Dorothy L'Amour, who was known as the Sarong Girl in the 30s and 40s and was very famous uh, in the 40s for her uh, movies that she did with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, uh, The Road to The Road to Zanzibar, The Road to Morocco, uh, and very sweet, very respectable. You would never in a million years know that she had gone on dates for Polly or that uh, Rocco Delarmi, one of the biggest uh, of Dutch Schultz's uh, henchmen, had a terrible crush on her uh, and, and would have absolutely killed anyone if he'd known that she, uh, that she was going on dates for Polly. Uh, even among women of the underworld, it was not considered okay to be a prostitute. Uh, it's, it, the, the, the double standard goes deep. Uh, that, not that they all loved prostitutes, Plenty of it, but God forbid you, your girlfriend should become one or God forbid you marry one. Uh, and I'm sure that that is a, a, uh, a prejudice that still remains. You know, what, what's interesting about their lives, and sometimes I did feel that a little bit about Polly, not that her life wasn't totally fascinating and didn't have lots of adventures and ups and downs, but that, you know, running a brothel is like a business. It's in a funny way, it's it's a lot of laundry. It's a lot of cleaning of the dishes. It's a lot of emptying the ashtrays, changing the sheets, doing the books. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, even the act itself 
yeah, you kind of move in and move out. Uh, and that every once in a while, I thought, I hope I'm not glamorizing this too much because a lot of it is just plain harboring. If she had not had maids, she had many African-American maids. One of my disappointments was uh, that it's clear that there is uh, um, a whole subset of African-Americans who are coming up to New York City from the South during this period. They're moving to Harlem and other corners of the city, and they can make so much more money working for people in the underworld than working in, uh, in you know, the respectable world that uh, there is a whole book to be written about all of this apparatus, the structure of Black Americans who are help making this world of criminality Ride. If you watch old movies from um, the 30, from the pre-code era and other times, you will often see a black maid as part of the the setup with the sort of floozy on the rise. Uh, you know, the the Barbara Stanwyck or the you know the 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 woman or the Mae West, uh, and they really are critical. And Polly could not have made her career without them. And unfortunately. Um, the main woman who was her, her big right-hand uh, woman, a woman named Showboat, who really helped make her career what it was. In the end, she refused to have Polly um, use her name and story in her book unless Polly paid her off in big money and Polly was too frugal. Uh, so she had to be written out. I mean, because Showboat, her name is Showboat, was very canny. She was clearly as smart as Polly was and maybe even more educated. And uh, so she, you know, in a way, it was great to see her like, no, you're not going to make money now off of me unless you pay for me to sign the waiver. But on the other hand, it was a real, tra it, to me as a historian, it was tragic because I thought your story, Showboat, needs to be here because none of this would have been possible without that whole structure of you guys, do, you women who, who are often unnamed. So that was one of my disappointments. And in general, I did not get enough about the women who worked for her because they tended to stay, they didn't become famous so much, or if they did, it was very secret. Hollywood was filled with women who were rumored to have worked in prostitution. People like Lucille Ball and Barbara Stanwyck and Joan Crawford and Jeanette McDonald, the sweetheart of the musicals. You know, it's, uh, and I don't want to tear down their reputations, but I think it says something about our world that somehow it would be unacceptable to know that in their youth, they had somehow traded a little sex for money. Uh, would that have changed our understanding of them as screen goddesses? Probably, but maybe not. Maybe we don't care anymore. Maybe maybe times have changed. It's, it's just, if you can make 10 times the money, it's almost, as some people have said who go into the business, it's almost like you don't respect yourself if you insist that you need to make $3 a day instead of, you know, $200 a day. You know, who are you trying to impress? Although Polly, it did trap Polly. Polly always said it made it hard for her to leave the business because as she well knew as uh, as Polly, the Pearl Adler, the reformed, the reformed madam, I was a pariah. But as uh, Polly Adler, the proprietress of the most opulent bordello in New York City, society came to me. And so it really was hard to give it up because that's what that's what society wanted from her. That's what certainly what they were willing to value in her.
Polly's brothel quickly took on notoriety for a place not only for selling sex, but also for the underworld, gangsters, racketeers, gamblers, and more, to meet with the promise of privacy and anonymity. This also became a reality for another group in society forced underground, members of the LGBTQ plus community. Here is Debbie. She was very close to a lot of people in the gay community um, because her, her as uh, she liked to call her brothels, they were really more than brothels. They were, uh, she liked to call them uh, salons with a, uh, speakeasies with a, ha- with a harem handy nearby. And they really had a salon-like quality. And a lot of gay men, gay women would come and spend time there just because she had fabulous uh, food all the time. She had top shelf booze. And it was a relaxing atmosphere where you could be yourself outside of prying eyes, uh, outside of people who are being judgmental. Uh, And so she had many friends in the gay community and many women, of course, who uh, work in the sex trades are also uh, women uh, who often are flexible sexually, you might say. And uh, so there were many rumors, even among her own family, that perhaps she was a lesbian. I can't tell. I don't know. She had many friends who were lesbians. I think my real reading is that she just shut down that emotional side of her as she herself says at the end of her life i don't think i can ever really truly be happy because i have just seen too much of the dark side of life and i think she just couldn't have personal relationships and didn't believe in love at a certain point she counted among her friends not just her customers but among her friends you know, some of uh, people like Jock Whitney, who is one of the great American aristocrats, um, the Vanderbilt uh, sons came to her. Half of the, the classes of Yale at Yale and Princeton would come and she and she could see the hypocrisy that here the judges, judges who might well sit in uh, judgment of her or her girls tomorrow might well be taking advantage of her services that night. And of course, the police. I mean, that, that there are many shocking parts of this story, but the, the sheer corruption of the vice squads and the magistrates, uh, the criminal magistrates, it, 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 it's, uh, it's hard even to imagine how corrupt it was. I, I do believe it's better now, but of course, Nothing is, <laughs> power is corrupting. Uh, and so I think she just saw human nature itself. I I feel like I became more jaded working on this project. There's nothing like seeing human nature always at its most hypocritical. Uh, it, it, does, it didn't do much for my respect for men. But with such notoriety comes the danger of exposure and legal action, especially as U.S. laws began changing and tightening around sexuality and perceived indecencies. As Debbie points out, At one point around 1924, they decide they're going to change the laws because up until then, up until quite late, because it didn't work, uh, up until then, you could it was not illegal to buy sex. It was only illegal to sell sex. And that's true in many jurisdictions even now. And not only was it uh, the double standard there, 
if a woman and a man were brought to court, you know, if you were brought in as a pimp or in the rare cases as, as a customer, the man would be let go if there was no other testimony besides the police officer who arrested you. But a woman could be uh, could be convicted just based on the police officer's testimony. And if the police officer didn't show up, maybe you'd be let go. But if he did, you'd probably end up going to jail unless you paid a really hefty fine. So at some point around 1924, they dis- uh, some reform groups decide we need to change this. We need to make the customer's amendment, they call it. They're going to make it illegal for men to buy and to solicit sex as well. Every single man who's on the committee at, up in Albany uh, in the state house says, are you out of your mind? I mean, even the reformers, even the moral reformers are saying, are you out of your mind? Anyone could just accuse us. I mean, oh, well, imagine, hmm, isn't that interesting that somebody could just accuse you and, and you could be brought in, which plenty of women were. That you, and and they just kill it dead. Uh, the, the lawyers are like, wow, well, this is, and the lawyers sputter uh, quite funny as much they've tried to put in as much obfuscatory legal language as possible to say this is this is a dephrasing of of legal phraseology which i was like really you just mean no this is no can't do this not okay not cool however with multiple legal cases and arrests even an investigation by the fbi during her career polly's star never dimmed as a world-class madam in her later years Polly was able to bring her entire immediate family over from Russia. But the notoriety that so excited Polly horrified her family. She was uninvited to Shabbos dinner and High Holy Days, which was a blow to Polly. As she stated, It's interesting that at a religious holiday, I can't be with them at the same table. Oh, but they'll take my money. Despite her family's disappointing reaction to her success, Polly strove to be known by more than just New York's underworld and the law. She wanted to be world famous. She collected photos, letters, memorabilia, and recorded her own oral history as a way to preserve her story. From her perspective. This culminated in the publication of her memoir, A House is Not a Home, in 1954, catapulting her into a much bigger spotlight. As Polly said in an interview, No one ever thought Polly Adler could write a book. But then, after all, I was creative in my own field. The ultimate stardom after her memoir's publication was the culmination of a lifetime dream of being somebody. Here's Debbie. From the time that she was very little, that she wanted to be someone, like a someone, capital S, someone. Uh, the Yiddish phrase was yichas. I wanted some prestige, you know, I wanted for my learning and my wisdom and for, for, my, for my, my genuine, real respectability. That's really what she wanted. And she wanted to be successful uh, and very famous. She was deeply ambitious. When she found she couldn't do it the normal way, she took the queer ladder to success, as the criminologists call it. And that is true. A lot of the immigrants of that time, uh, people like Lucky Luciano or Meyer Lansky in the male world, they took the same queer ladder up to raise themselves. And of course, that is the, the story of the great Gatsby, that he that's what Fitzgerald saw. And in fact, Fitzgerald uh, based uh, the Gatsby on some of Polly's very specific friends and very specifically on a chance meeting with one of her great patrons and mentors, a man named Arnold Rothstein. 
who uh, was considered sort of the Jewish godfather of the underworld. Uh, and he becomes the character Meyer Wolfsheim in The Great Gatsby. Uh, and he uh, also uh, it was a great character in, in general in popular culture. If you if you like uh, musical theater, he was his floating crap games inspired Guys and Dolls. He is also, if you're a sports fan, he is the gambler who is supposed to have paid to throw the 1919 Black Sox world series. Uh, so he was, uh, you know, somebody who he was like many of those male criminals of that period who were so deeply ambitious. They did become legends. They became icons. Uh, those gangster movies that and books and stories that came out of uh, the, uh, the 1930s and the 1920s, culminating in films like The Godfather uh, or, you know, to this day, the, the gangster is one of our American archetypes. The male gangster, however, and many of them, they didn't want to be famous. They just wanted to be powerful and uh, important. Holly really wanted to be known. She wanted people to know who she was. She wanted people to respect who she was and see how much she had created in her life, which was 10,000 times harder uh, for a woman in her position. She saved trunks full of uh, material to help write her to be remembered. Programs and letters and books signed by all of her fancy clients like the Algonquin Roundtable and many movie producers. And uh, I mean, everyone who the literary world loved her. She So she saved trunks. She had even reel-to-reel -reel tapes that she made of herself reminiscing, uh, picture albums, programs of things she uh, had gone to see. She really was someone who enjoyed life. She, as she put it, I'm someone who can't help getting a kick out of life even when it's a kick in the teeth. And uh, so I loved her resilience. I respected her, even though it's quite clear she did not always dabble in the most moral of occupations uh, and the most moral of friends and colleagues. Uh, but nonetheless, there was something about her that was very stand-up, very honorable, and very honest in her own way. She would calls herself an unorthodox businesswoman, like many of her friends who were bootleggers who thought of themselves as unorthodox businessmen, or as gamblers who saw themselves as speculators, who were uh, among her other close friends, or frankly, even among some of her very respectable politician friends who saw themselves as power brokers, but really were the right hand of the mob. It was a t one of the fun things is if you like the stories of somebody like Damon Runyon, it's that feeling of the world has its code, the underworlds has have, have their codes and have their mores, but they're just topsy-turvy and they're, they are like the, the upper world only upside down. And the other thing was she reminded me a great deal of the Great Gatsby of Jay Gatsby in, in a wonderful uh, Jazz Age novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald. She brings to life her vision of American, the American dream by throwing parties. That's how she climbs up the ladder, the way Gatsby throws these massive parties to try to lure in all of New York society from top to bottom until he can finally get what he wants, which of course in his case is one person, as well as the prestige of becoming the host of all of New York. Well, she did the same. She did not have a daisy uh, that she was looking for, although she did say she would like to meet a nice good Jewish boy and get married. And if that had happened, 
happened, nothing, the whole career would have been a very different one. Uh, but what she wanted was to climb the ladder. And by becoming someone who threw marvelous parties that mixed all of cafe society, the upper world, the underworld, the half world, beautiful women, pillars of the community, uh, entertainers, you name it, all the interesting people New York had in those wonderful interwar years are at her house. And that brings her exactly the kind of cachet that she and Jay Gatsby both really wanted. And the idea that somebody could really make that happen was fascinating to me. When she died, this is an important lesson, don't uh, leave your stuff to the brothers or siblings who don't like you as much. Uh, she, who had supported her entire family, brought over her entire family from Russia, uh, helped uh, keep them alive, gave them money their whole lives. When her final brother, who everyone else in the family had died, he gets all the money well over a million bucks at the end. And there was probably more since she was excellent at hiding uh, money from the tax man. Uh, he throws out most of those things because he is embarrassed. He is deeply embarrassed about his sister. Uh, so there is a shame, uh, a real shame that somehow she had gone to the work to create an archive as a historian it kills me. She created this archive and for sheer embarrassment, uh, it was dispersed. Sometimes things turn up, actually. There are still things that turn up, um, but it, it clearly bothered her tremendously. The tension between wanting to be remembered and everyone else saying, let's not talk about that. Her memoir was a huge bestseller sold 2 million copies in 1950, in the 1950s at a time when these sorts of things were very uh, touchy, uh, talking about sex, especially women and sex. Um, and it was made into a movie. In fact, I think had she lived, she died just the year before the movie uh, was made. She would have been thrilled because it showed <laughs> to the people who wanted to play her, who were scrapping to play her, were Joan Crawford, Ethel Merman, uh, Barbara Stanwyck, uh, her good friend Martha Ray. Uh, she would have loved knowing that all these big Hollywood stars, some of whom may even have worked for her. Uh, it's possible Joan Crawford went out on dates for her. Uh, it's rumored just a little bit uh, that she would have been thrilled. Uh, in the end, it went to uh, an Oscar winner, blonde sort of Zoftig Oscar winner named Shelley Winters. It's not a very good movie, but I think she would have been absolutely thrilled to, to know that it's unfortunate, kind of got uh, panned and didn't do very well. You can still watch it on YouTube. It's, it's, it's not a great, it's not a great movie, but I think she would have loved it so that even when I was writing this, there were, there was a moment, there was a moment that, uh, I, I blew me out of my chair. I'm, I was talking to, cause this is the part that's fun, the, the hunt, the hunt for the clues, the following your hunches. And I had t found a man who had known Polly when he was in his young twenties and he was now in his eighties and Polly, he had known Polly near the end of her life. And he, they become quite good friends in a sort of Harold and Maude kind of way. And at one point he's driving her around Los Angeles where she is retired. And he can tell something's bothering her. She's, she's really brooding and she is sitting there kind of in a, in a blue mood. And all of a sudden she says to him, would you introduce me to your mother? And he says, well, sure, of, of course I would introduce you to my mother. Why, why wouldn't I? Why, why do you ask? And she says, well, 
you know, my own mother won't have me uh, to the holiday table. She won't have me to the Seder table or any of the high holidays because she doesn't approve of me. And then she pauses and she says, don't you think it's interesting that she'll take my money, but she won't have me at the holiday table. And so he doesn't really know what to say. So he's just sitting quietly and she kind of brood. She goes back and she's silent for a minute and brooding. And then she says, you know, I knew Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I knew the president. Uh, and he's like, what? And he's, and I said, I, I literally jumped out of my chair because I knew that she knew many politicians, that she knew many pe- powerful, powerful, powerful men, uh, worldwide influence, but I had never heard anything about Franklin Roosevelt, St. Roosevelt, the, one of the most beloved presidents in American history. And I said, well, what did, how did she say it? What did she say? She's, she's very matter of fact. Uh, and she, and she said, uh, and she, he said, she said it like she was already near the end of her life. She's already suffering from the cancer that is going to kill her. She had just had the humiliation of having her memoir turned down by every publisher in New York before, before it was finally published. Uh, and her mother had just told her, you can't come to dinner. Uh, and he said it was almost like she had to break her silence just once to say, you know, she said it like, I used to know some of the most powerful people in the world and somebody should know and respect me. I said, did she say anything else? And he said, well, the one thing she said was that basically she was being taken care of for the rest of her life by contributions from uh, Democrats. And I thought, okay, well, that explains, uh, that explains some of her prosperity. Uh, And I spent so much time trying to figure out if I could confirm this or not. And I have to say up front, I could never fully confirm it. I can never, but there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. And, and one of the things about being a biographer in general, as you may, if you've interviewed people, you, you know, we are peeping Toms a little bit that one of the things we do is go through people's drawers and their correspondence and their diaries and, and, uh, hopefully in the service of history, uh, and good things and understanding, but even still, there is a little bit of a, a prurient quality to it. So one of the things I had to do was figure out could FDR have sex? Because everyone knows now that he was paralyzed. And I finally found, I finally found a a memoir by a very respectable newspaper publisher named Dorothy Schiff. And she had been having something of a flirtation with the president. I don't think they had an affair, but she, and she's talking to, she recounts talking to FDR's doctor. And clearly this is before uh, medical HIPAA laws. There's no, uh, no, no, because she says, well, can he, I mean, is he still, this is the way she would say, is he still potent? And the doctor says, well, doesn't hesitate at all. He says, well, of course he is. Remember, only his legs are paralyzed. And I thought, okay. And so, she, so I, oh, there we go. And she says, she's quite baffled. She says, well, well, how does he do it? And he says, well, the French way. Now, if I had not already spent a lot of time learning uh, smutty slang of the 1920s, I would have had no idea what the hell he was talking about. But uh, the French way was uh, oral sex, uh, fellatio, if you want to use the Latin phrase, which had become uh, come back with the soldiers who had been in France. They had all learned about this 
this, this exotic new form of sexuality. And at that time, virtually no respectable woman engaged in that sort of practice. You, you would almost certainly be a, a prostitute if you uh, were doing, uh, if you were engaging in fellatio. So I think, uh, um, for that, that was just one of the clues. I think it's probably pretty likely, but I, I, you know, as it is, I cast enough aspersions on people. I got Joe DiMaggio, I got Desi Arnaz, I got, uh, there are plenty of people who are not embarrassed to say they were her clients. <laughs> In the in the notes of her um, of her ghostwriter, there is a list of uh, criminal. What did she say? People who can't be named, and every single one of them are the single biggest uh, members of the mafia and the national criminal syndicate that are still alive. She talks about the ones who are dead, like Dutch Schultz uh, or Arnold Rothstein, but the ones who are still alive, they don't. They they don't. Uh, they are for good reason. For good reason, not uh, mentioned. Uh, yeah, she. She. I mean, it's clear that she knew Al Capone quite well. She mentions Al Capone a little bit. I, of course, would have loved. I mean, I would have loved to hear any more of any anything she had to say. I'm sure she would be great company. In fact, the one thing that's quite interesting is at the end of her life, she retires in 1945. It's been 25 years and, you know, prostitution is a very stressful, uh, dangerous business. So 25 years is a very long time to be in the sex trades. And she has managed to stay safe uh, and to, uh, she did go to jail. Uh, she got 30 days, but only uh, actually got five days off for good behavior. Uh, yes, it was her only time. And in fact, the publicity from going to, from the trial ended up um, only boosting her reputation among the cafe society crowd who thought it was, oh, now ultra chic, although she was terribly embarrassed. Uh, it, but so when she retires, like many people of that era, she moves to California, uh, like a lot of her friends, they were all out in LA and, uh, she really, uh, does, she is 100% retired except for writing her book, but she also wants that education that she was denied by fate. So she goes back to high school and gets her high school degree. She goes to junior college and gets her associate's degree and it's quite interesting. There are a lot of accounts by friends of hers, people who had known her during the glory days of prohibition, who are thrilled to run into her at a party or in the airport or wherever you, and each one of them have the same thing to say, which is, I don't know how that witty, fun woman who was a little racy, but always, but, but always great, uh, always a, a great companion. She's become rather dull. All she wants to talk about is what grade she got in her, on her French homework and the paper she's writing about the old man in the sea and the fact that she doesn't really enjoy the wasteland. This T.S. Eliot, she thinks is for the birds. Uh, and you know, and how much she's learned to use the dictionary and loves the dictionary. And, and you can see she feels like she's now joined the conversation with the other educated people who were always she was always spending time with, but in fact, she has become like a little old lady who, uh, becoming respectable uh, has almost ruined her that her, she would not be Polly Adler had she not taken that path. She would never have been famous. I mean, maybe, maybe she would have started, maybe she would have been like, you know, Ira Rosenthal who, you know, started maiden form bras, but, or Elizabeth Arden perhaps, but you know, that it wouldn't be the same. She would not have been the same. No.
the the musicians, the Tin Pan Alley guys, the jazz musicians like Duke Ellington, Fats Waller, or um, George Gershwin, those people, or any of the uh, entertainers, the show business, the people like Milton Berle or Desi Arnaz or the comedians or actors who came to her house, um, they don't mind talking about her that much. Uh, they're like, of course, or the journalists, you know, the rough and tumble journalists, they're happy to tell stories about what she was like and what they were like in that time. But her best clients were in fact businessmen, you know, the people who came for conventions and needed to stock their girl, stock a party with girls or that had buyers or account executives who needed, uh, like uh, her biggest corporate client was, um, uh, BBDO, which remains one of the biggest ad firms in uh, in New York City, and a total madman kind of scenario. You could not find uh, a, an advertising man who would have anything other than his lips entirely zipped. The more respectable they were, they were uh, the more likely they were to never tell, and that drove me nuts because I know there were plenty of great stories in there. And in fact, the one thing there is not in the book is a sex scene. There is no single moment where somebody, because nobody ever described what it was. They would describe what it was like to hang out and party and have drinks and laugh and or to, you know, play, you know, dice or whatever. She was a killer at backgammon, uh, you know, all those things. But nobody would describe what it was like to actually go into the room with one of her girls. And I, I, I at first I presumed, well, that's because, you know, how different could it be? But actually, the more I read, I was like, ah, there's quite a bit of variation. While Polly reached a height of fame during her lifetime, with the destruction of most of her memorabilia after her death and the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, Polly's life almost seemed square. Two years after her death in 1964, a film version of her memoir starring Shelley Winters premiered, but the movie was panned by critics and viewers alike. And as time went on, Polly fell into obscurity, as Debbie discusses. You would you would have had to be up until now, up until this book. I think you would have had to be of a certain age. There are people alive; they're older who remember her book, like they remember being on a, a shelf that they weren't supposed to read, uh, that they, or that their mother, uh, even her family members, uh, their older elderly family members who remember uh, sitting around the table and saying, "Our family is so boring," and an uncle saying, "Ah, oh, well, you didn't you didn't know her yet." And usually the mother would be like, "Shut up." Shut up, stop talking about this. Uh, so she had, there was a time where she really was in Walter Winch's column every week where she was in the newspapers. And then when her book comes out, it, she is really huge, massive, huge uh, literary person. But of course, you know, these things you fade. And I think especially something related to sex, you know, it is the double standard remains. Uh, we do not, even still we find, uh, we find all kinds of violence uh, fun to watch in movies and on, but we don't really love women who use sex as their weapon against the world. It's still very uncomfortable, uh, especially for men. I think for all of us, there is a, there is a, the mix of commerce and our most intimate desires is always a little uncomfortable, even at its best. I think though the timing is right um, because I think in it would have been even better had the book come out in the middle of the Me Too sort of flowering because I think it is that recognition that oh my God how much power and sexuality 
intersect in so many secret ways. You know, the people who did not approve of Polly, which of course were probably most people, uh, despite her many, many fans, would say, look, here, the reason why we don't want to have these secret places is not just because you have women who are living lives of sin or because it's a dangerous business uh, filled with drug addiction and sexual transmitted diseases and depression and all the, the possible dangers that go along with it. It's also that when you have these secret places, they become breeding grounds for more secrets. So that her parlor was a place where cops would uh, hang out because they could secretly hang out there and get free sex and get free booze and nobody and bribes and nobody would know, which of course is terrible for law enforcement. It was a place where judges and labor leaders could meet with gangsters and um, and gamblers and, uh, you know, uh, make dirty deals. People would be chosen to be the, the candidate or chosen to be the next uh, police commissioner in these spaces. Um, there would be places where men you think were the pillars of the community uh, are making deals in part because, oh, now he, you know what? Uh, this guy just paid for a prostitute, and if I, he's got something on me. Well, maybe I should put that contract towards him. Uh, they call it the power of shared transgression. Uh, as one, as one guy I I found was described because I was trying to describe what what is it that they liked about going to these places together to party and to, and there is a sort of camaraderie that comes that the only thing I can think of today that is similar because I don't think we have brothels in the same way today of course prostitution persists and I'm sure there are some brothels in America but for the most part if you want something you'll go on the internet you'll make a phone call someone will come to you you'll, you'll go to a hotel uh, you don't have a place where you just sort of like go and hang out and booze it up and hang out with your pals and maybe go off into the bedroom. Uh, and I think there's, there's, as one guy says, listen, and it's like going to a strip club now. As one guy says, well, one businessman says, you know, the thing is you get a bunch of guys who don't know each other. Uh, you get drunk, you go look at naked women together. And the next day you're great pals. Or, you know, or as or one account CEOs also described, you know, I, I like if I pay for a prostitute for one of my potential clients or customers, it's I don't want to call it blackmail, but it's a little something I hold over their head. They got a little something to make it seem less like, a, you know, like a dirty deal. But they also know they're usually family men. They usually have wives and, uh, you know, it's a bond, but it's a kind of ugly bond. And I think that is one of the reasons why I don't know if we should have. It's one of the reasons why we need to be careful always about corruption, because once you have more corruption, it's very hard to root out. That was one of my great conclusions is we need in America to be much more careful about not getting on the slippery slope because it's very hard to get off the slippery slope. Uh, my other big question that I spent a lot of time thinking about is prostitution itself. Should it be legal? Should it be illegal? What? Because it's clearly not great. Polly would not have wanted any of her friends or her daughters uh, or she didn't have daughters, but if she'd had a daughter, uh, she would never have wanted her to go into the business. And it's because precisely, yes, it would be so much better if you could just make 
a million bucks respectably as a woman. Just how about that? How about we do that? <laughs> Why do you want to pay more for my body than for my mind? And uh, and so I, my only I don't think we'll ever get rid of prostitution. It does involve both people doing it willfully, choosing it, and feeling, okay, this is my way of taking power in my life. But it also includes people who are trafficked and people who have no choice in the matter of how they got here and what they're going to do. So it's very hard to regulate something that includes all of that. It's very hard to regulate something that, as I say, intersects with your deepest, darkest desires around which we can't help having some shame. Even if we are completely shameless people, we still have a lot of shame around sexuality. So it means it will always be uh, dangerous. It will always be difficult. The one thing I really do believe, though, is we should stop t stigmatizing people who have anything to do. I hate the way people talk about, about strippers, for example, or women who work in topless bars or places like that. You want to be there. You like those women, and yet you want to, the minute you're done, the minute you leave, you want to downgrade them, you want to call them names. I find that just disgusting. And that uh, Polly and I are in perfect agreement on. As Polly wrote in her memoir, A cynical person might say my life had been a typical American success story. From the arrival at Ellis Island, up the ladder, rung by rung, $5 a week, $10 a week, $100 a week, a mink coat, a better address, from the neighborhood trade to an international clientele, from a nobody to a legend. To her supporters, Polly's brothel provided a space for personal expression in many forms prohibited by wider society. To her detractors, she was an overly ambitious, cash-grabbing woman whose brothels became the backdrop for many illegal activities. Debbie, meanwhile thinks that Polly is far more interesting than just a madam or a criminal. What do I want people to think about Polly? And what do I want people to think after reading the book? Well, in some ways, as I say, I wrote the book to be a time machine. So one of the things I want them to think is when the book is over, I want them to think, oh, that, I'm sorry the book is done because I so enjoyed that trip uh, to Jazz Age New York. And even if I wouldn't want to live there, I would. it sure was a fun place to go. So I want people to share that pleasure because even though a lot of this was very ugly and, uh, and really uh, sometimes people will say, oh, which gangster did you like the best? And what I'm saying is really which sociopath was more or less, and some were worse. There are definitely worse sociopaths than others. <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, even still, they are people too. Um, about Polly, boy, I want, I really love Polly uh, for all her flaws and her foibles. And I want her to have the respect that she herself craved, which is not the same thing as thinking everything she did is okay, but as seeing somebody who really made uh, something of herself when she was dealt a very bad hand, who somehow still, she survived, as she herself says, long after many of her colleagues uh, were in the grave or bankrupt or in jail, and not just her criminal colleagues, uh, many many of her customers and many of the people who seemed a whole lot more respectable than her, she survived and lived to really become, when she dies, when she dies, 
her obituary, a long uh, syndicated obituary, runs in almost every single paper in the United States. This was back when there were hundreds of papers. And the fact, and what does it say, of course? Forget that she corrupted men and women and politicians and cops. What does it say? It says author dies. And I figure you have to really respect somebody who could come from nothing, go through the fire, and come out and still have say, you know, author dies. Uh, best-selling author uh, to me. Hey, listen, if, if, if that's what it says on my obituary, I'll be thrilled. She's remembered not as a not as a horrible harridan and a and a whoremonger, but as somebody who represents this crazy period of time in life, the Roaring Twenties, the 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 Dirty Thirties, and she really uh, embodied a period of time in a way that and nobody else quite does. Mm -hmm.